The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's Thanksgiving on the 26th of November and so this week we look at the myths behind this American holiday and particularly the story of the Mayflower, the ship that landed in Plymouth Bay, Massachusetts 400 years ago. We'll explore the story of Thanksgiving, the Mayflower and importantly the Wampanoag, the native inhabitants of the region around Plymouth Colony who along with other tribes had lived there for 10,000 years before the Europeans arrived. And for this week's Work of the Week, I speak to the artist Chantal Joffe about a Paula Modison Becker self-portrait. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up to the art newspaper's Art Market Eye newsletter for a monthly guide to the art trade. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of other newsletters, including our daily email. Now, the ship the Mayflower set sail 400 years ago on the 16th of September 1620 from Plymouth in the UK, bound for America. On board were 102 men, women and children from different walks of life across England and the city of Leiden in Holland, some of them separatists, Puritans who wanted freedom from the Church of England. The ship arrived in Plymouth Bay, Massachusetts on the 9th of November 1620. Its passengers would come to be known as the Pilgrims and play a huge role in the future of the United States of America and in the US's founding myths. Of course, when they arrived, they met the First Nations people who had lived around Plymouth Bay for millennia, and particularly the Wampanoag. Among the many Mayflower legends is the story of the first Thanksgiving, where the surviving settlers from the ship invited their Native American friends to join them for a huge feast following a successful harvest. The Mayflower 400 project describes itself as an honest, broad and inclusive commemoration of the ship's sailing from England to America and its often challenging legacy, which it's marked with various exhibitions and events. It examines the history from multiple angles, among them, perhaps most importantly, the perspective of the Wampanoag people who were directly involved in the project. A bit later, we'll hear from Stephen Peters, a member of the Wampanoag Nation who co-founded the creative agency Smoke Signals. But first, I spoke to Joe Loosemore, the curator of the exhibition Mayflower 400, Legend and Legacy, at the new arts venue The Box in Plymouth, about the Mayflower and those myths around it. Joe, the Mayflower story is one that is legendary, but it's one which is full of myths. And that's one of the things that this project that you're curating has set itself as a sort of task to unpack right absolutely right from the start and that that's partly i have to say because i came into this as uh, a curator but a non-specialist in the atlantic world of this period a non-specialist as a, a maritime historian or an ethnographer for that matter so actually lots of the sources that i was looking at were completely new to me Lots of the the story and the historiography around it were completely new to me as well. And so I kept being hit by surprise after surprise, because all the things that I thought were true were clearly not true. So um, that became particularly clear with, with certain things, like, I suppose, the imagery we have of the people. I famously, traditionally, and certainly thanks to our our Victorian uh, colleagues in this field, um, they consistently wear black, they consistently wear buckled belts and ultimately big pointy hats. And the truth of it is, is that people in the 17th century, irrespective of their faith or their devotion to God, wore all kinds of colours. Oranges, yellows, russets, purples, browns, blues, pinks even. So, you know, straight away, there was something which told us something about how mythologised they'd become. To say nothing of that group itself, and I became really very fixated, you know, with them as a group, because here you have 102 people, normally, traditionally, again, they're seen as homogenous, and for the most part, male. 
And the truth of it, again, is that they weren't. There were men, women and children of all different ages, different birthplaces across England, very different backgrounds, and more than likely with different beliefs as well. So that was just sort of one sort of aspect of the story where I thought, okay, I have to start pulling this apart and actually pulling out the facts from the fictions. Traditionally, it's been understood that this was a group of Puritans fleeing persecution, right? But what, uh, one of the key factors that you're, that you're setting straight is that actually there were multiple reasons why these people got on the Mayflower and travelled to the New World, right? I, I think so. I, I absolutely think so. Now, clearly we're hampered by the source material. Um, and while William Bradford's tome you know, is a remarkable text, it is one man's perspective of effectively half of the group. So if you have 102 people and they're aged between um, oh babies and toddlers and people in their middle 60s, then inevitably you're going to get... A range of motivations as well. Now, it's clear that half the group also were separatists and came up with the idea for this voyage to America because they had been persecuted in England 12 years before they decided to make this journey. So I think the whole story of persecution is not quite accurate when you actually look at the timelines properly. That's right. So they were they were in Leiden, right? So they were in Holland for 12 years. And, and one of these motivating factors is that actually they were committed to a certain Englishness and they didn't want their children to be Dutch. Absolutely. So when Bradford describes the lives of that community living in Leiden from about 1607-1608 through until 1620, he he gives us the, the motivations for their departure. And they are, as you say, they're worried about their children becoming dangerously Dutch. They're also worried about their community ageing. They're also very concerned about how they live economically. And so, you know, while traditionally we've seen these people as religious migrants, I think we should reassess that viewpoint and look at them very much as economic migrants as well. But was their faith important? Yes, clearly. Did they want to um, sail away in order to give themselves more religious freedom? Yes, absolutely. That's what they say. But again, you know, we're only talking about less than half of that 102. So the others had multiple reasons as well. Some of them were religious and had been in trouble with the Church of England in England. Um, But others sought new lives, sought escapes and probably had very personal motivations for leaving as well. Now, one of the key factors is, of course, that they weren't intending to go where they ended up. <laughs> Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, it's an easy mistake to make, isn't it, in the 17th century? Um, I, yeah, they had an, an English patent, if you like, which is a sort of you know, complicated way of saying they had English permission to settle in and around the Hudson River and in the area in what four years later became New York. But because of navigation, because of weather, because of uh, the personalities or particularly of the the master of the ship um, and the encounters they faced, they ended up arriving at Cape Cod and it took them a month to find somewhere to settle and so that's why they ended up in what was the abandoned Wampanoag village of Patuxet but which ironically when you think about it had already been named Plymouth by English navigators. Many people listening to this may assume from what they've been taught at school or from what they've heard about this that the Mayflower was somehow a sort of maiden voyage of the English to the New World. Can you can you set the record straight there? And also, you know, how come it was called Plymouth already? How, what, what's going on there? 
Yeah, they're really, really good questions because I think that's the other surprise. And and we had the the privilege of working extensively with the Wampanoag people who live in and around Plymouth today. And one of the first things they said to us was, please, whatever you do, don't start this story in 1620. It doesn't start then. And that's the truth of it. It doesn't start then for anyone. It doesn't start then for the English. And it certainly doesn't start then for for the Wampanoag. So there had certainly been earlier English voyages across the Atlantic, as you might expect. There was a flourishing fishing trade, particularly, well, down from Newfoundland, right down, you know, along the main coastline. And and people who lived in and around Plymouth had encountered English and Europeans before. So I think, I mean, ever since, I suppose, the sort of Elizabethan age, really, there'd been an attempt to, to trade with America and with Americans. Um, But the the colonial endeavour had really begun, I suppose, in the 1570s. And I think things would have been very different had Roanoke, which was England's first colony in America, actually in what we now know today as North Carolina, had that survived, then I think perhaps the story of English colonies in America would have been very, very different. So by 1620, in the voyage of the Mayflower and the passengers there, there'd already been an English settlement at Jamestown for 13 years, you know, a difficult settlement, um, certainly, um, but that had been there for that period of time. There'd even been an experimental settlement in Popham as well, which is a, a place in Maine. So Native Americans had encountered the English and suffered at their hands, certainly. There'd been conflict already, brutality. Um, but in terms of the sort of the, the naming of the places, you know, it's extraordinary. If you look at those early maps, particularly of John Smith, who was a very uh, instrumental seafarer, captain of this time, you know, he's mapping the coastline and he's naming places. So Plymouth really already had its name. It had it other names as well because the Dutch had been there too and so had the French. Um, but it had a recognisable name, certainly, but actually... Actually, you know, even John Smith wasn't the first to to map that coastline. There'd been another English seafarer there called John Brereton. And and he delivered really, I suppose, the first sort of comprehensive map of that coastline. But there are previous ones as well, even Harriet, who, you know, who sailed on that Roanoke voyage. So, you know, the English had been slowly, slowly mapping this area and attempting to create colonies there for 30, 35 years, possibly more, before the sailing of the Mayflower. One of the things that, that you mentioned there was the, the suffering uh, of the Native American people. The, the extent of disease that ravaged those communities is something which, when you read the facts, it's just astonishing. Right? Can you just give a sense of the scope of it? Because even before the Mayflower got there, disease had had its had a huge effect on those communities right oh most definitely and i think when you think about that in the contemporary that context that we're in you you realize i suppose something about the secularity of history um but also i suppose how powerful and poignant it is to be telling this story again 400 years on so when the passengers of the mayflower arrived in 1620 they actually found a a, a wampanoag territory which had been decimated really by disease over probably about three years, so really about 1616 through until about 1619. Now, you know, numbers are very difficult to assess at this time, but the Wampanoag people, their oral history tells them that probably 90%. 90% of their population had been lost as a result of European disease. So that's disease that had been brought in by sailors on European and English ships you know, over several years. And, of course, those diseases just ravaged those populations. 
And so when you have the passengers of the Mayflower arriving, you know, they describe finding bones, finding villages that are abandoned. And why are they abandoned? Because so many of the people had died because of this disease, for which there was just no defence. Obviously, we're talking about this in the context of Thanksgiving. That's one of the biggest myths, right? So um, I think what I'm keen to establish is the idea is of this moment where a convivial scene of um, Native Americans and the pilgrims gathered together happens. But actually, as you've already pointed out, there's brutality, there's there's disease, there's other things. How much truth in, is there in some kind of sort of positive coming together of these different people? Well, I, I think it's I think it's true to say that an alliance was formed between the Mayflower colonists and the surviving Wampanoag people. And really that political alliance is formed because of the disease that had afflicted the Wampanoag and because of the desperation of the colonists themselves. So there is a political alliance. I think it's also fair to say that some of the personalities of the time got on and got on well enough for there to be personal alliances. Um, But they didn't really last terribly long, it must be said, and the area was destabilised by conflicts of all kinds from really the 1620s onwards. So while it suggested there was about sort of 50 years of relative peace, you know, there were disruptions and there were difficulties within that because there became you know, a very significant imbalance of power. So when you put the, the traditional Thanksgiving event in the midst of this, it sits quite uncomfortably. And there are really two sources about it. And I suppose the most useful one is by a guy called Edward Winslow. And he writes in a publication published in 1622 that um, there were three days after the harvest when the colonists really made the most of this abundance. So four of them were sent hunting for fowl and they also practiced their arms their arms and their armories so they were drilling and firing and shooting Um, and then uninvited it must be pointed out the Wampanoag arrive there are 90 of them so they double the number of the colonists and they don't have enough food because there isn't enough from the colonists so they actually bring deer to eat so is there a a sharing of food well yes to an extent although it seems that each community brought their own um do they do that together yes it seems so 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 there's there's something in that certainly but what is so I suppose peculiar about this is the word Thanksgiving is never used in these sources because in this period of time to the colonist Thanksgiving is actually a very different kind of event it's actually an event marked by fasting rather than feasting and also this event that has you know become so sort of universal I suppose certainly in the states um it's it's something to the Native Americans, which again is very different. Again, you know, they gave thanks at different times and in different ways. They do not record this event in their oral histories or on paper. So again, I think that's significant. And I think you know now, and obviously I. You know, I I don't want to speak for them, but I think sort of now, you know, Thanksgiving this year is actually the 50th anniversary of the National Day of Mourning. So it has a completely different meaning. So I think if you look at this event from the historical perspective and you look at the sources, 
then it's clear that what it has become is very, very different from that event held in the autumn of 1621. Earlier on, you were saying that you had to sort of come at this from a new perspective. It's, we've talked a lot on this podcast about decolonization, And it seems to me that if you're going to tell the story of the Mayflower, then in a new way, it has to be from a decolonizing point of view. Is, is that, is, would you use that term? Yes, I think I would. Absolutely. I mean, what was so fascinating to us is right from the start, we had decided to co-curate this exhibition with Wampanoag Partners. And so we developed a partnership over three and a half years and their influence was remarkable in all regards. I mean, their generosity of spirit, of history, of... Um, support has been remarkable throughout but it's enabled us to see this story and to tell it in what is a dramatically different way for us which is ironic given that the sources themselves are written although they're written from an English perspective absolutely but they represent a shared story and this has always been a shared story But over time, the Wampanoag part of it, the fundamental Wampanoag part of it, has been at best marginalised and at worst ignored completely. And their participation in Mayflower 400 and this anniversary year has dramatically changed that. It's changed the storytelling, where the story starts, how it's told who's involved in the telling and I think it makes for a much richer story a much more honest story but yes a much more difficult story because ultimately you know for the Wampanoag people this is colonial history and that makes it living history they are still living with the legacy of colonization today and Fortunately, this anniversary has enabled us to recognise that, to address that and to accept that. And most importantly of all, I think, to learn from it. One thing I'd like to focus on is that the Wampanoag were crucial to the survival of that Mayflower group, right? So about half of them had died, the Mayflower party, right? Um, Can you explain a bit more about how, in a sense, a sort of diplomatic situation, a diplomatic structure, it actually helped with how that community could be successful in in settler terms? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when the passengers of the Mayflower arrive, they are, I think it's about 400 miles away from the nearest English settlement. So when they arrive, they, they, they have absolutely no structures. And possibly not that much understanding of the environment, the world, the challenge ahead of them. And I think when they first begin to actually try to settle on on land in, in December of 1620, really the, the ship is a hospital ship and a lot of them are already quite ill. So by the end of that first winter, you know, you have uh, whole families wiped out. You have incredible numbers of people who just cannot survive. It's not starvation that gets them because there are food sources, there's fresh water, but it's really the exposure, um, particularly for the men and for the women and for the children who die. It's probably the confinement and the fact that they stay on the ship for the most part until March of 1621. So this group are in a desperate state and... They're not farmers either. You know, they're not people who know how to survive in an American landscape. They're just Most of them have worked in textiles and things like that, Yeah, absolutely. Textile people, um, that's the jobs for, you know, most of the Leiden lot, really. Others are merchants. You know, they're they're a real mix of professions, but perhaps not the 
mix of, of professions that you might need, you know, if you're going to settle in America. Um, so they're really, really struggling. And the Wampanoag, who have have challenges of their own because of, of the decimation they've faced because of disease, see men, women and children and potential allies that they can work with. They also have, um, within their group, some English speakers who had travelled to England before as a result of all kinds of voyages, but it means that they have some English speakers. And so there is a coming together, and as a result of that, the Wampanoag do teach the English colonists to hunt successfully, to fish, to plant, to grow, and fundamentally to survive, really. I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. And without that support... I think it would have been extremely difficult for the surviving colonists to have survived anything like as long as they did. Joe, thank you so much for telling us this story. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. Mayflower 400 Legend and Legacy is at the box in Plymouth until the 18th of September 21, but it's obviously closed at the moment due to the UK lockdown. You can find lots more information about the various commemorations of the anniversary at mayflower400uk.org. We'll talk to Stephen Peters in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The future of the top art fairs continues to shift. Art Basel has announced it's moving its Hong Kong fair from March to May, and now Freeze is postponing its Los Angeles show from February to July. As Annie Shaw writes, Freeze Los Angeles is also leaving Paramount Studios, whose backlot has hosted the fair's projects for the past two editions, and adopting a more nomadic format for 2021. Details are yet to be announced, but expect to see galleries in empty and, quote, architecturally remarkable locations in LA. UNESCO has pulled back images from an advertising campaign intended to highlight international trafficking in looted artefacts after receiving complaints that it misrepresented the provenance of the works pictured. As Nancy Kenny writes, among the objects used in the campaign were three from the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York that were not stolen in recent years, as the original adverts indicated. Egyptian archaeologists have announced the discovery of more than 100 painted coffins at the ancient necropolis of Saqqara, just south of Cairo, Gary Shaw writes. The coffins are sealed and intact and were found along with funerary masks, canopic jars used to store mummified internal organs and statues, says Khaled El-Hanani, Egypt's Minister of Tourism and Antiquities. The wooden coffins and other objects were buried during Egypt's late and Ptolemaic periods, which together lasted from 664 to 30 BC. It is, quote, the biggest discovery in 2020, according to Mustafa Raziri, the Secretary-General of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get at the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Available to view until the 20th of December, Christie's Private Sales is proud to present their latest online exhibition, Monet Richter. Claude Monet and Gerhard Richter redefined painting and the art world in their respective eras. Where Monet emphasised light, colour and shape, Richter breaks paradigms in his abstraction, bridging the gap between colourism and conceptualism. Christie's curated virtual exhibition addresses the implicit dialogue between these two visionaries. Browse the full exhibition, navigate Christie's virtual galleries and discover more about these artists at christies.com slash richter. To view the works in person, arrange an appointment online at christies.com. Now, Stephen Peters co-founded the creative agency Smoke Signals with his mother, Paula Peters. A member of the Wampanoag Nation, based in Mashpee, Massachusetts, Stephen curated the exhibition Our Story, The Early Days of the Wampanoag Tribe and the Pilgrims Who Followed, which was installed permanently at the Provincetown Museum in Massachusetts this spring. Helen Stoilus, our America's editor, spoke to Stephen about his work. So, yeah, you know, it was really important for us to try and put history into context for people. And I think that's that's one of the things that we've seen that's been missing um, in 
both the mythology that was, you know, that we all sort of learned growing up around the founding of this country and the Thanksgiving holiday. And so for us, it was important to show that there were certain events that occurred prior to the pilgrims arrival that, that sort of made everything happen. Mm. And so when we started to take a look at the history and to put this Our Story exhibit together, so 1614 was really a natural starting point for the Our Story exhibit for us because it, it allowed people to understand that Patuxet was a village that became Pilgrim Colony mm. and that that village had some certain things that occurred in that, that year. So in 1614, there were 27 men that were taken slave from that village by uh, Thomas Hunt, who was actually sent there specifically to, to trade with them in good faith. Uh, unfortunately, he decided instead of trading for goods, he would capture these 27 young men, take them back to Spain and sell them as slaves. One of those, those men was Tisquantum. He's the only one that, that we know of, of those 27 young men to survive and make it back. Um, we all came to know him as Squanto. And so it was important that people understood in the beginning of the exhibit that Tisquantum was a person that, that had learned English because he had been taken slave. And that Patuxet was this village that was there prior to the Plymouth colony. From there, we, we really started to move forward towards the Pilgrim's arrival. And the next major event for us to, to cover was a plague that ripped through the Wampanoag Nation between 1616 and 1619. And through our research, we really started to see that that, that plague really most likely originated at the Patuxet village. Uh, the, in that year, 1616, there was a French ship that had um, wrecked off the coast and there were documents of these merchants coming ashore and having showing signs of being sick. Uh, shortly after that, a plague starts to move through the Wampanoag Nation very quickly. And it, it just was devastating. Uh, there are accounts of over 100,000 Wampanoag dying between 1616 and 1619. That really impacted the Wampanoag people's ability to um, feed themselves, to you know, manage their villages, as well as to, to protect themselves from other tribes that were you know, starting to war with them, including you know, the Narragansett tribe that was on, on one border. So come 1620, when the pilgrims arrived, you start to understand why the Wampanoag would have been in a position to engage in some sort of mutual agreement with the pilgrims and allow them to settle in the village of Patuxet. They needed an ally at that point. They, they had really been just devastated by the slavery, the plague that had ripped through, and fighting that had occurred um, between the European ship merchants that had came through and the natives as well. I mean, it, it wasn't always a friendly relationship that that went on between these traders when they came through. And in fact, by 1619, we think that, you know, the relations between the merchants that were coming here to trade and the natives had really deteriorated. Um, and it probably is one of the, the reasons why so Ferdinand Gorgias sponsored the passage for Tisquantum to return with Dermer uh, in 1619 to try and smooth things over. Wow. So the village of Patuxet was one of these um it was just completely abandoned. It was just completely um, destroyed by this plague, right? So when they returned, it was kind of an empty shell of what it had been. That's right. Yeah, the the, the village of Patuxet was was abandoned. Uh, you know, you have to um, try and imagine what it would have been like in 1619 to see this sickness. You know, and, and I guess now being you know 2020, mm. it's a little bit easier to to paint that picture because here we have, you know, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. But in 1619, they did not understand how this disease was spreading. They understood where it was hitting hardest and they, they knew immediately that you just did not go back to those places. And it ripped through so fast as well that there are accounts that unfortunately our people didn't even have time to, to properly bury um, the dead. You know, when, when the pilgrims arrived, there are accounts of them literally sweeping away the bleach bones of the dead from the Patuxet village to make way for Pilgrim Colony. 
Uh, and the pilgrims were well aware of you know, the plague that had ripped through. They were well aware of the village of Patuxet and the fact that it had been abandoned. So you know, it, was, it was carefully planned out when they arrived outside of the Virginia Compact in, in Provincetown that, that yeah, you know, there's a, a short, less than a day's ship ride away to a village that you know, has cleared land and you know, has crops that are ready to be planted there. Um, so it was, it was, for them, it was you know, divine intervention mm. that, that that village had been you know, ripped apart by the plague and was abandoned. And they, and they knew that there were inhabitants of this kind of region. They found food stores and everything, right? When they arrived, they had kind of dug up corn, like winter provisions that were being held. They did. Yeah. You know, the, the pilgrims, when they arrived outside of, well, they arrived in Provincetown outside of where they originally intended to sail to, they did go out and explore. And so they, they started to explore. Uh, it's known as First Encounter. It's, it's accounted that they ran into two Wampanoag. Uh, they saw them in the woods. They tried to keep up with them to, to see where they were going. They could not keep up. In that, in that journey, they, they found a storage of food. They found some graves that were there. Uh, at that particular day, they decided not to pillage the graves. Uh, they would revisit that not too long afterwards. But uh, at that point, they decided not to village, pillage the graves, and they took some corn, uh, a copper kettle, and a few other items. Then, because they knew they were in for a tough winter, that that is for sure. They they had at that point, I think, fair enough amount of provisions, but they needed more, and so they started to take what they could find. Uh, the Nosset tribe, who was in that that area, kind of watched this, and it wasn't too long before they decided they had seen enough, and they did not want the pilgrims on their shores anymore. And so they started firing some arrows at them. There were shots fired back and forth. There are no accounts of anyone being hit. Uh, I have to think that that the Nossets probably were just firing some warning shots and being like, look, you know, you've had enough time here now, move on. Right. And the pilgrims did. They moved on and settled in Patuxent Village. There, there's now kind of a recreation site in Plymouth that recreates this Plymouth Village. And it only recently included Patuxet in its name to to recognize this early history. Right. When you installed the um, exhibition in in the Provincetown Museum, there were some existing displays there um, that kind of showed this first encounter in a different light. Um, how do you, how did you kind of uh, approach that? It's always interesting when you're when you're looking at you know, the names of institutions, uh, exhibits that were created in a previous generation. And, you know, at that particular point in time, there wasn't a lot of thought or care put into how those names and those materials would impact the indigenous people that were here prior to that, how those would perpetuate stereotypes that would continue to impact the ability of the natives that were here to, to really move forward, um, as well as to be seen on, a, on an equal path with the with the Europeans, you know, systemic racism was and is still still a problem. So when we approach those things, um, it, it's it's always a bit of a challenge because your your first thought is, you know, let's rip them down off the walls, let's let's change the names and and you know just bury them. Um, after more thought though, and especially with the Provincetown Museum and the material that they had up on their walls and the inaccuracies that, that were there, we decided that it was better to, to still exhibit parts of that material, but put it into context and explain to people why those images, why that text, why that depiction was inaccurate and how it impacted and continues to impact the indigenous people today. And so we did that by, by creating panels that showed parts of the old exhibition that had been there and pointing out exactly what was inaccurate and why it was important that we made those changes. So people can see that for themselves and start to put it into proper context. We also went forward as well to show how the stereotypes specifically in the 1960s were, were really ramping up uh, on Native Americans. You know, they were depicting Native Americans as sort of bumbling, inarticulate, um, you know, it, it was uh, it was offensive, and you know we were always we're always the butt of a joke. 
Um, so we wanted to show people those stereotypes and we did that through the depiction of one particular show called F Troop. Yeah, I remember and, that show. Yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was a comedy and by far the Native Americans were, were the butt of the joke in that, that comedy. Uh, we also went forward with more contemporary issues as well. And we did that through sports uh, and, and sports mascots. And one particular team that we focused on in that when we were developing this exhibit was then the Washington Redskins. And that was uh, a team that we as Native Americans had been screaming about, you know, for the past 60, 70 years saying, look, this is really, really offensive. I mean, just, just the name Redskins, if you look it up in the dictionary, is, is really painful. I mean, it, it's, it's there because they were literally a bounty put on the heads of Native Americans and they were paid when you brought our skin back. So, you know, we've been fighting that fight for quite a long time and arguing, you know, to what we thought were deaf ears. And um, when we created those panels, I never thought the Washington Redskins were going to change their name. What happened in between that was the Black Lives Matter movement. And that finally was enough of an eye-opening experience for corporations and really the, you know, the general public to say, oh my gosh, what we have been doing is damaging to people. It really is painful. Um, we need to make a change. And so they changed their name. So now we have this panel that's up in that museum which I'm thankful is a little bit outdated already. I mean, we put it up in April and, and it's, already, it's already a little bit outdated, but that, that's a change that we didn't, we didn't necessarily coming. Uh, the same thing with what is now Plymouth Patuxent and was you know, Pilgrim Plantation. You know, there had been discussions for quite some time that that name was, was painful, not only for the Native Americans and indigenous people in this area, but also to anyone with a slave background as well. You know, African-Americans absolutely look at just the name plantation as negative. And so the thought that they would hold on to that name for as long as they did was, was really confusing. Um, they finally changed it. You know, I, I wish they had done it a lot sooner. I wish the Washington Redskins had changed the name a lot sooner, but they finally came around. It took a lot of protests. It took a lot of media attention um, and, and it took a lot of backlash from their consumers. But finally it happened and we're thankful that, that they finally came around to, to start to make the right choices. And this exhibition, do you see it kind of continuing to evolve and continuing to adapt to, to recent times? You talked about the, the kind of display about the Redskins already being outdated, do you think you'll, you'll update it when it reopens in the spring? Uh, no, I, I don't think that I would, I would necessarily update that, that particular piece because, again, I, I think it's important that, that those issues continue to, to have a place within museums and they don't just get buried away once. Once we take a step forward as, as a people, um, there continues to be a place to catalog and archive that history, good, bad, or indifferent. And so I'd like to see that continue to live there in the museum, mostly so that we don't continue to make the same mistakes that, that we've made going forward. And, and I, I do get nervous that if we bury the past and pretend as though it did not exist or these you know, inaccuracies and myths did not occur even after we correct that history, um, that we'll kind of fall back into old patterns. So we, we don't want to see that. We do want to see positive movement forward. Where we, where we tend to focus on adjusting the dialogue is in the education setting. You know, we focus a lot in early schools and working with them on their education materials with uh, educational sites, libraries, books, resources. Those are the places where we do want to see the most current and accurate research available for people to learn from. Great. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. This has been really, really helpful. Thank you. I appreciate it.
You can find out more about our story at pilgrim-monument.org. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Chantelle Joffe was due to open a new exhibition at Victoria Miro Gallery in London this month, but its opening has been delayed until January because of the second lockdown in the UK. You can, however, see a group of her naked self-portraits at the Victoria Miro website and on the Vortic Collect app, and those works relate to her choice for Work of the Week, a naked self-portrait by the German artist Paula Modersen-Becker, which is on view at the Paula Modersen-Becker Museum in Bremen. You can see an image of the painting if you go to our website, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Chantal, you've chosen a work by Paula Modersen-Becker. Can you tell us about the work you've chosen? I chose... And I'm going to have to read it from a book because it's a long title and I often get it wrong. So it's Self-Portrait, <laughs> age 30, six Wedding Day, May 25th, 1906. It's Paula Modison Becker and she's naked to just below the waist, sort of in a uh, bit like a, a Venus de Milo. Um, and she's got her famous amber beads that she's wearing in a lot of paintings um, around her neck. And she's... She looks as if she could be pregnant. She's got a sort of rounded tummy and she's cradling her tummy um, as a pregnant woman might. And I wanted to say that, weirdly, I first saw this painting when I was myself 30 and myself thinking about whether I might like to have a child and how that would be and how, as a painter, I would be able to manage that and if I would be able to manage to be both a painter and a mother. So when I saw it, it was like a kind of, it was very visceral, kind of hit in the face because I was like, oh, my God. That And, you know, she's got brown hair and a bun and brown eyes. And I was like, ah, it's me. It's me. You know, I, I know that's a bit babyish. And she wasn't pregnant, which I didn't actually know then. I thought she was. And I was like, wow, you can do this. So it was a. what I also didn't know was, of course, the tragic story that follows from that. And also the backstory of how she what. Anyway, there's a lot to that painting that both before and after isn't there. Yeah, exactly. So, so tell us about the tragedy then, because it, this, this is a sort of, a, a sort of, even though it's a very light painting, there's a sort of grim portent of what of what what comes next in her life, right? Well, her friend Rilke called it. He saw it as a kind of doom laden painting, which, you know, was sad because, of course, it is in a sense. I mean, let's go back though, because you know, here's Paula. She's in Germany. She's run away from her husband, who's a much older painter, who's quite sort of not actually domineering but they hadn't actually consummated their marriage interestingly so they never had sex and she's run off to Paris from this tiny town in Germany called Vorpsweide which is near Bremen which I've actually been to visit and I've been in her house which is now a museum to Paula and you can stand in her living room looking out at the birch trees and think oh my god I can totally see you know on a rainy November day which is when I did it you think God, to imagine Paris from there in 1905 or whatever it was. I, you just feel what it was to be Paula and to imagine this wider world of, you know, Gauguin and Picasso and people that she had seen and did imagine. And then she goes, she leaves her husband, gets on a night train, arrives in Paris, penniless, knows Rilke, knows a few people, but she's got no money, got a roll of paper under her arm. And... I mean, I wrote down something she said. Um, she writes to her sister, I'm living the most intensely happy period of my life. Pray for me. Send me 60 francs for models' fees. Never lose faith in me. And she makes this painting while she's there. And it, it contains all the complications, all the confusion, all the, should I go back to my husband? I'm running out of money, but I'm. this is the best thing. And then she paints it. She literally manifests all that in the painting. And I think it's the first self, nude self-portrait ever made by a female painter. And it combines like history, personal history. There's just so much in it. And then she goes, eventually she runs out of money. She's forced to go back to her husband. She wants a child. She thinks, OK, I can manage it. And she paints a series of incredibly heartbreaking self-portraits after this of herself pregnant and sort of gazing back at you across time, saying, you know, maybe this is going to work, maybe it's going to be okay. She has the baby, very difficult birth, um, and then dies, I think it's two weeks after of an embolism, because in those days you recovered from childbirth by lying down, which obviously wasn't so great for you. 
And so in a way, it's like a horrible prophecy fulfilled. But in another sense, it isn't. And I like to think that that painting is still there and she's still looking at us saying, should I, Shantai, what should I do? And it's a question, it's an assertion. It's like the Gentileschi self-portrait saying, I'm here, I'm a woman, I'm going to do this. Anyway, I, I love this painting very much. <laughs> Let's let's talk about some of the sort of technical side of it, because one, one of the things that I'm really struck by and I'd love to ask you about is it seems it seems to me profoundly counterintuitive to to portray a naked body in front of a very light background like that. And it, the background to me is almost like just as fascinating as her self-portrait, because it's this light background with these sort of green dots almost a completely decorative background and then of course you have this very powerful figure in front of that background tell us about that I mean does it, as a painter do you look at it and think how does she get away with doing that <laughs> it's really interesting isn't it and it's sort of it's almost like a very pale artichoke with sort of splotches and she uses it again in there's a painting she sets up by her bed when she's giving birth or just after it's her last, it's a massive vase of flowers, again, against that splotchy background. So she clearly has invented it because she's in different places making those two paintings. So it's a strange choice. Virtually, as you say, the flesh and the green kind of merge, don't they? And also they're almost as active as each other, the sort of, you know, the splotching. And then she has that weird technique with paint where she sort of applies it in little brush sort of, she was very interested in those Fayan portraits, Egyptian ones that she was looking at in the Louvre. And she's, I think, I don't know if she was using encaustic or just interested in how encaustic works in paint and the texture it gets. She loved, she hated it to be smooth. She wanted kind of texture and substance to paint. And she's always adding things. I think they don't even know now how much she would add. She used um, tempera and wax and all kinds of things. And and when you see them in the flesh, they do. They literally have little ridges and, and weirdly like Jasper Johns or somebody. You know what I mean? Because he uses encaustic, so you get that kind of fattened kind of quality. Right. <laughs> um, tell us more about your engagement with Paula and and her painting, because one of the things that we talked about when we spoke for the A Brushwood podcast was the way in which lives and work are intertwined and this idea of sort of being obsessed with not just the, the work, but the life that, that led to the work. Is is that very much the case with Paula? Yeah, I mean, I've got the letters, the notebooks. The, I mean, the best person, if you ever want to find anything out about Paula, is to look at Diane Radiki, who is the kind of... She's the person who wrote the most amazing book on Paula, and she's the person who got the MoMA to buy the first Paula and... It's a self-portrait late in pregnancy and it's fantastic. And she's like a kind of pioneer, really, Diane herself. And she, you know, she's literally brought Paula to the fore and the reason most of us know about Paula in a funny way. And so I think we all owe her a debt, really. And But yeah, the pilgrimage, I would call it, that I made to see Paula's house in Borpsveda and her grave, which weirdly is a sort of real pilgrimage site. It's very moving to see that. And and I wanted to talk about the hands because you and I have talked about hands before in paintings and uh, in connection with all sorts of artists. And one of the things that strikes me about this work is, again, this, you know, the hands are so significant. Of course, you know, the, the dominant features are the stomach and the breasts and the and the face and the, and the beads. But the hands are so important in what the what the painting says in a way. How do you respond to the to the way that she depicts the hands? Well, I think with Paula, there's that sense with really great painting that they're just enough. She's not trying to show off or they're not fancy. Do you know what I mean? They're they're very practical. They're, they're, she's not showing you I'm the best hand painter in the history of the world. They're, they're, and I'm, that's not a criticism because they're not intruding. They're not jumping out. They're, they're doing what they need to do. They're cradling the tummy. They also have a weird relationship, I think, to Demoiselle d'Avignon. They have that kind of a slight crude quality, almost kind of... I can't quite put my finger on it, but 
like the upper hand is almost slightly animal or something. It's got a kind of fierceness about it, which and her eyes mirror that fierceness. She literally stares back at you in this very sort of strange, challenging kind of way. It's funny, I wrote a lot of notes about trying to talk about this because there's so much to talk about with Paula and with this painting. It feels like there's some paintings that are kind of, I don't know, so radical, they almost defy one to define what it is. Um, and I think my sense, uh, when I looked at it, and I think everybody feels that, Every certainly every woman painter feels that, she's literally saying, should I, can I, will I, you know, and but then anchoring it in this incredibly solid real painting that isn't at all vague or undecided. It's utterly solid and radical and modern. In many ways, I'm paraphrasing from Diane Radicki's book because she really says all the things that, you know, there are to say about Paula in a funny kind of way. I don't want to not acknowledge that debt. <laughs> the, the face really is intriguing, isn't it? Because as you say, it's, it's a question she's asking. And, and it, you know, the more I look at it, the more difficult it is to penetrate into her internal world to a certain degree or to at least come away from this painting with a conclusion it keeps you coming back and looking doesn't it and I suppose that's the thing about her work isn't it there's there's an endless there's a sort of mystery to a to a certain degree to all her work I find yeah and it's not sweet it's not feminine or sweet or she's tough and you know she's run off at night to get away from her husband and she's Somehow, if I imagine that for a moment, the bravery of that at that time, you know, without phones or, you know what I mean? Just She's just run away into the night from this tiny village to go to Paris. And there's this fantastic bit in her journals where she talks about the joy of just having a pear or a piece of chocolate for breakfast. The, the freedom she glimpses when she's in Paris and just the joy of that. And that was so denied to women of her time and her class and and well most women everywhere but I think that's for me you can't separate those and just how strong and tough would you have to be to be a painter at that moment in that time and come out with that and paint yourself naked and then and believe in it it's hard enough to believe in painting now you know in a modern age let alone then to, to think you had the right that you were allowed to do that you know and to paint yourself naked and there's also a sort of flirtatious kind of um it's slightly come hither as well you know what I mean it's not just she's not just pregnant she's beautiful and she's sort of saying look at me it's an amazing painting it's not there's no shyness there's no demureness it really is take me as I am here I am look at me now these these pastels that you've been making over many years now and that people can see online for the moment and we'll be able to see hopefully soon at Victoria Miro. <laughs> you never um, know. Tell me about those. I mean, how directly are you responding to Paula in those pastels? I guess Paula's always in my head in a way and in a way the permission to paint yourself naked, maybe that comes from Paula and a kind of invitation. I mean, they're of course, they're of course me looking at Degas and trying to be both Degas and his model kind of thing, I guess. And that, for me, is always a kind of exciting challenge to try and um, <laughs> to try that and, and fail again, but um, to try. OK, well, Chantal, thank you so much for telling us about Paula and all the others. <laughs> thank you for asking me. You can see the exhibition Chantal Joffe Naked at online.victoria-miro.com or on the Vortic Collect app until the 18th of December. The real-life exhibition Chantal Joffe's story that was postponed and which features the pastel self-portraits will hopefully open on the 27th of January 2021 and continue until the 6th of March at Victoria Miro in Wharf Road, London. And you can hear an in-depth interview with Chantal in our other podcast series, A Brush With, wherever you usually listen to your podcasts. Do subscribe to hear more episodes in the coming weeks. 
And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. And you can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Joe, to Helen and Stephen, and to Chantal, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.